Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planetrillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanetrilliontreespodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab. We are proud to announce that the Planetrillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on February 17th, 2023. Paul Cox is the Vice President and Principal at Environmental Design Incorporated. He is a graduate of Texas A&M University and attended University of Houston to study international business and the Spanish language. Paul is a certified arborist through International Society of Arboriculture, and he is credentialed as a consulting arborist. His experience in the tree industry includes contract negotiations, tree preservation, plant health care, project management, and tree relocation, to name a few. Paul's responsibilities have included high-profile sites, which include the National September 11th Memorial in Lower Manhattan, the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, Governor's Island Park installation in New York, and the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, Texas. Paul's current responsibilities include multiple business units operating in the eastern United States, Canada, Mexico, Central America, and Europe. Welcome to the Planetrillion Trees podcast, Paul. We're delighted you could be with us today. Well, I'm pleased to be here. So, Paul, let's get into it. I'm interested in hearing really about the Cox family, you and your brothers, and how this company came to be. How did you get your start in this very specialized field of of, uh, large tree moving. Okay, great. So I'm actually the youngest of three brothers. My oldest brother, Tom, and my other brother, David, originally started environmental design as a landscaping company in Houston, Texas, back in the the late 70s, mid to late 70s, while I was just a pup in high school and was coming around working on the weekends. And the focus was landscaping uh, and landscape contracting. And our, our family background is such that my dad was a nurseryman and, and had a series of nurseries in the Houston, Texas area for many years. So it's kind of been 
in our background for a long time. My, my grandparents actually were kind of in the same business as well. So that's how we got started. But in one job in particular in Houston, there was a requirement for the planting of about 100 oak trees on a landscape project. And that was kind of beyond our capacity. We were landscapers, not tree planters. And so we subcontracted that piece of the work to a gentleman who was very well known uh, as the inventor, actually, of the hydraulic tree spade, the actual machine that goes and digs up trees. And he came out to our project and installed all the trees. And it was so efficient and very profitable for him, we surmised, that we thought, boy, oh boy, this landscaping stuff is really great, but the margins are kind of thin. And if we, we kind of abandoned over time the whole landscape business, as it were, and just concentrated on planting trees. So we acquired a very small tree tree spade, so you can only plant very small trees with it, and started doing those sorts of projects. And again, at this point in time, I was peripheral to the whole operation because I was still in school. So over time, the company, you know, which started out as just a from-the-ground-up kind of thing with my older brothers, kind of blossomed in, in Houston. And over time, more and more jobs came on board. And uh, we just realized, or they realized, that moving trees with the mechanized spade was the best way of going about it from an efficiency standpoint. So more tree spades were acquired. I went on to college and was kind of a part-time employee. And then after I got out of college, came into it full-time and... We, over a, a series of various small acquisitions, bought some other local tree transplanting companies and then just kind of spread our tentacles from there. And so over time, we've, we've gone from a very small business uh, based in Houston to a business that operates all over the world, actually, and, and with offices throughout the United States. In terms of the moving of the larger trees, that was kind of another outgrowth of the tree spading operation. The gentleman that invented the tree spade, his name was Al Karinik, and he was an inventor, kind of an interesting guy, but he also built some gigantic tree spades. And after about 10 years or so of us being in, involved, we actually bought his business and acquired his giant tree moving spades, which could move trees you know, up to the 16, 18, 20-inch diameter range. And we actually built two more machines identical to the first one. And that got us into the larger tree moving aspect. And then beyond that, we were getting calls and inquiries about moving even bigger trees and other projects and other places. And so we started developing other methods and techniques for doing that. And over the course of the last 30 some odd years, 40 years, have developed and patented methods for moving the largest trees in the world. I have to ask, because when I look at the website and the marvelous images of these projects, Paul, there's got to be an engineer or two on your staff. Am I right about that? It just... Uh... Well, right about that. <laughs> you are right about that. So I would say my number one, my, my oldest brother, Tom, while he's not an engineer, he's very inclined that way. Right. And over the, over the years, we have hired various engineers. Uh, actually, our COO is an engineer. And so we have this kind of collaborative way in, within the confines of the headquarters of coming up with new ideas. And then we go through the engineering and then sometimes farm that stuff out you know, to, to subs. But uh, yeah, there are certainly there are engineers involved in, in what we do on a very regular basis. Do you have uh, strategy sessions on a regular basis for your next moves for the company and the size of what trees you're going to be moving? I would imagine there's, it takes a lot of coordination. Yes. Mental. Yes. There's a lot of mental. Consternation is the, is the word I would use. Okay, you're saying, saying fortitude. Okay, 
what, what happens is, so we, we kind of have the attitude at the company that we will take on anything. We will, and we will find a way to make whatever that particular project is become a, be a success. For example, so right now, as we're having this podcast, we have a team over in Florida that is taking three trees that are, each have root balls in excess of 40 feet in diameter and are loading them onto a barge and rolling them up a river in Florida and then offloading them onto a, a site where they're going to be replanted. And we have to go underneath bridges and we have to get drawbridges open. And, and you know, there's clearances and tolerances that are within just a few feet, if not you know, several inches to get, get these things through and up the river. So, and as we do these sorts of things, we oftentimes develop new methods, uh, new, new techniques, and then we fine tune them and then we actually go off and patent them. I guess one of the most innovative things we've done in the last several years is a system that we call ArborLift. Right. And that is, you've seen that on the website, I'm sure. That is something that we saw what that technology was and how that was used. It's mostly used in the shipbuilding industry, launching big giant ships. And we thought, gee, I wonder if there's a way that that we could use that to our advantage in moving gigantic trees. And so we bought some of those bags and brought them to Texas and just on our, what we call our proving grounds, our big giant space we have outside of our offices where we also grow trees. And we just started experimenting. And within a couple of months, we had perfected the method and we use it pretty much all day, every day, all over the world and all over the country. Well, don't you think it's really fascinating that our industry, uh, the tree industry, really learns a lot from other industries that we might not really think about? Like, for example, the tree spade came from the coal industry, you know, trying to dig men out of the coal mines. The tree spade helps our root systems in trees. So you you saying about the shipping industry doesn't surprise me. What other industries do you think you can look to for inspiration for your moving? That's a great question. And it really comes more down to a matter of happenstance. And it's, 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 we don't concentrate on a particular industry, although we do deal with a lot with the with the oil industry. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, one of the go-tos. We, we get a lot of our uh, structural pipe that we use for our platforms through the oil industry. It's a, it's a function of, we use, we use salvaged drill stem to create our, our subsurface platforms for lifting these trees. The other area of, of interest for us is it, all things hydraulics. Being able to leverage that pressure with fluid to lift super, super heavy things. In fact, that's, at Villanova, we used what's called a gantry system that we actually built ourselves. Uh, we actually bought from NASA some really, really gigantic hydraulic cylinders that each one had the capacity to lift 750,000 pounds. So we've got four of those and created a gantry system and use that. It's kind of a, it's not obsolete anymore at this point, but we don't use it very often at all because it is so costly uh, to do it. Uh, and we have just found that with the advent of ArborLift, it really opens up the industry for a lot more folks to be able to move giant trees because of the, the reduced cost to do so. You would take a typical gantry lift could cost you know $500,000, whereas using, just by using the ArborLift system, if the circumstances allowed, you can reduce that cost by half. Wow. So it That's creates an opportunity. That's a lot. Yep. So 
Can we talk a little bit more? You uh, touched on Villanova University uh, here in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Can we talk about that project, Paul? Perhaps give us that whole timeline start to finish, because as I listen to you talk, I'm thinking, wow, the out-of-town logistics. How does that work? Uh, Are you mobilizing in Texas and then moving across the country with all your equipment, or are you locating local contractors in and around Philadelphia? It's both. Um, so for for that project specifically, and that was done back in 2011 through 2014, it was a three-year project, not for the tree part altogether, but we came in at the beginning. But they were doing at the university an entire renovation of that central core to make it you know, more pedestrian friendly and just to become a showcase. Uh, and they were having to do some some major renovations. It was like a $23 million project. So in that particular instance, we did ship our gantry system up from Texas to do that work. And we use our technically capable guys that run that stuff. And then for the some of the other pieces of it, for, for example, just equipment rental, we would get locally from the, from the local providers. And then we teamed with Davey Resource Group, which is the local local folks up there who were actually the consultants on that project to have them provide the aftercare. So it's kind of a, it's a team approach, but yeah, we're generally mobilizing equipment and people on a pretty regular basis all over the country. It's, it's very much a traveling circus <laughs> to some extent, but uh, back to Villanova specifically. So we came in first and, and the issue there was that they are so proud and protective of all of their natural resources on the campus. They just, there was no way they were going to cut that tree down. You know, where, where, and they could have, but they didn't have to move the tree. They did it because they wanted to do it. Yeah, and that that's about 50% of what we do is that people just choose to do the right thing. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, so we came in first. They were needing to raise the grade in the entire area. So the tree had to get out of the way. Otherwise, it would have just been smothered. And the architect's walked the campus and they had an idea of of putting the tree a lot further away than where it originally landed. They wanted to put it out further, but there was too many other trees in the way that would have to get dealt with in a deleterious way. And so they settled on the spot where the tree landed, which was about 100 yards from from where it originally lived. And so we came in and we excavated a 26-foot diameter root ball about a, it was about a 60-foot-tall tree at the time. It was about a 28-inch DBH di- or trunk diameter. And there's a ratio for that that we use to make sure we're getting enough root zone to make the tree do well after the fact. And so we, we did our excavations, determined the root ball size, and encapsulated it. And then we pushed pipe beneath that root ball in order to then get a big, gigantic lifting beam under both sides of the tree that we then connect to our gantry and then lift it up. Once we get it lifted up, we put it on a specialized track trailer that we, again, brought from Texas. And that thing kind of just goes wherever it's needed on a regular basis all over the country. I set it on the trailer, drove it to the new spot, and then just reversed the process and put the tree back into its new home. Sounds simple. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yeah, very simple. How do you prepare that pit once you start to figure out the size of the pit? Um, because you really can't, you can't have it too deep and it can't be too shallow. So, um, and right. do, you, do, you, right. do you add anything like um, a mycorrhiza or anything like that? 
We do. We generally do, um, depending upon species and, and soil profile and, and just critical root zone and those sorts of things. We definitely amend soil and we do add the, the mycorrhizals. But in terms of the pit, so the first thing that happens when you when you get out to a job like that and you, you know where the tree is going to go, you have to be very, very conscientious and judicious about the way that you insert your subsurface structure that as the lifting part of, of the process. That has to be oriented properly, especially when you have a confined space like we did there, or you end up with all sorts of problems because there's not a whole lot of ability to turn. You have to you have to really think that through at the outset. And so what we do is we open that that bore pit, uh, we call it a bore pit, and it's opened up such that we can push our pipe underneath the tree in the proper direction. And then at the opposite end, on the receiving side, we do the same thing. We open up, we create our planting pit, which is generally about three feet deep. And just incidentally, typically speaking, and, and folks oftentimes are surprised by this, but they see our giant root balls and they think, gee whiz, it sure isn't very deep. It's like a pancake with a tree in the middle of it rather than a birthday cake with a tree in the middle of it. And there's a good reason for that. And that is because in the top you know, two and a half to three foot or so of soil, that's where all the all the living is going on and all the roots are doing what they need to do. So oftentimes it's much bigger around than it is deep. So back to the planting pit, open that up such that it's oriented to where we can pull the tree directly into the hole in the right orientation. And then we reverse that process and take the all the rigging and gantry parts. So do you position off. the tree exactly how it was positioned in its original site? So if it's facing west, it's, I mean, the one side's facing west. You you put it back. That's a that's a rarity. That, okay, that's, that's a rarity. A, that okay. rarely happens because of, generally because of just construction. Right situations and logistics. We, we like to do that right. if we can, right. but it, it very rarely happens that well, way. Well, we all went to that tree and gave it a hug kind of thing when we were there, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, give some love. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just to follow up, and I, I feel like I want to clarify for our listeners, what Paul just described in no way involved the tree spade. And no. if you get to the website, which is excellent, you'll see what he's talking about in terms of the equipment used, especially the fortifications that go around at the perimeter uh, of that root ball. I just want to jump back to Texas because, and you're, and you, as we speak to you this morning, Paul, you're in California. Give us kind of your overview on your approach to supplemental irrigation after the installation, because both Texas and California certainly have their issues with hot, dry summers, and uh, at least in California, some uh, regular watering restrictions. Correct. And that is perhaps the most critical aspect of what we do. We can, we can do a fantastic job, and we pride ourselves on doing a fantastic job every time. Uh, going above and beyond. But if the post-transplant irrigation and care is not kept up with, bad things can happen. So generally speaking, we can't be everywhere all over the country or all over the world where we've moved the tree. But what we typically liked, we will offer a post-care program that we will have administered by companies that we partner with in specific places that will come out and monitor the tree. The Villanova tree was actually monitored for on the order of three years after the move to make sure that it was doing what it was supposed to be doing and getting the proper amount of irrigation. But yes, that is that is critical. And out here in California, I do have 
one team of guys that does nothing but goes around checking on irrigation status on trees that we've moved. It's just a out here, as you say, with, with the restrictions and the, the variability of the climate, in particular, the, the drought years we've had, it's critical. You can you can lose a tree that's been in the ground for a year or so over the course of a really, really hot July weekend, especially in Texas. It's, it's harder in Texas than it is out here, for sure. There's a lot more forgiving nature out here. And same goes with Florida, where we do a whole bunch of work. We've actually got a what's considered the largest rain tree in the hemisphere sitting above ground over in Fort Lauderdale that's going to get planted, we think, now in about August. We removed it from its home last August, and we've been maintaining it above ground for all that time. Yeah, And we have an arborist who comes by and looks at the tree every week for moisture content and just overall health and sends us a, a report. So irrigation, moisture control, first and foremost. You also do work in the Mideast, too. So how do you handle those kind of circumstances? It's really hot over there. I know it is. I know. (laughs) Soil is really sandy. Yeah. But it's kind of the same. It's just a matter of having the right resources and talent on the ground to make sure that the things that need to get done to ensure viability are happening on a daily basis out there. So it's monitoring, 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 you know, all the time. And again, we typically, once we have completed a project in those sorts of circumstances, it's turned over to the locals with our oversight, you know, on a, on a less regular basis. Now, the question I have for you, and, and this is going through my head like a big alarm bell, when you're working with sandy soils, how do you maintain that connectivity with the root system without losing a lot of soil with it? Uh, again, it's, it's an interesting question, but that also comes back to moisture. For, for example, the tree that we are moving in Fort Lauderdale, it is growing in a 100% sand condition, and it's very close to a, a brackish river where it's actually getting moved out toward closer to the river. 100% sand, and at about three and a half feet, you start getting groundwater penetration coming up into the root zone. So what we do there, and this is, it's the same way we typically treat any root ball, is we come in and we put the burlap around it after we've excavated it, and then we put a big heavy-gauge wire fencing, if you will, around that and tighten it all up so that it's very cohesive and safe in terms of root ball integrity. And then in particular, if we're going to be holding the tree for a little while, we will come in with a big plastic wrap around the outside of that that helps hold in moisture and keeps everything tight. And in this particular case, after we did that, we came around outside of the plastic with plywood all the way around the root ball to just as an added strengthener to keep that that root ball cohesive so and and the moisture if you have the right level of moisture in the root ball it keeps that sand tight rather than it just being loose and fluffy i'm assuming a fair amount of technology this is another question regarding the watering aftercare i'm assuming a lot of technology in terms of uh, moisture meters assist the technicians for so many years i guess it's probably still out there the formula was always one inch per thousand square feet per week. But I think it's a little more technical than that. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, the moisture sensors have been instrumental in, in helping all the technicians in the field. But there's also kind of an art side of it. We'll go out and just without anything and just probe, take a, take a soil probe and see what we've got and find that balance between moisture and dryness. 
And we like to have a tree that goes through kind of a cycle of having the irrigation on and then allowing it, all of that water to penetrate and almost but not completely dry out the root ball, so to speak, and then reapply irrigation depending upon upon weather conditions and the like. Gotcha. It's art and science. Right. Oh, yes, it sure is. The website, uh, your the company's website is excellent, uh, and I admire and laud you guys for actually doing a blog and regularly putting up new material. That's very cool, and I encourage listeners to go look look at it because you and your people don't shy away from some of the issues that just don't seem to go away in terms of burlap removal and wire baskets. And I I, I, I thought it was the writing was very objective there. And kind of looked at at both sides of the coin. And I sure. want to give uh, our listeners the uh, the uh, address for that. It's treemover.com. It's not environmental design. Correct. It's treemover.com. That's us. Yep. <laughs> not to be confused with treemovers.com. Which is where I stumbled into first thing. But uh, remembered uh, that Tom Bulk, Texas was the home base. So. I I found you. So you do the mega jobs and just maybe going back to Villanova University, but I'm sure on multiple others, Paul, is there a time where a year or so ahead of time you have to send a crew out to actually root prune? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is key. You know, we, we, whenever we have the opportunity to root prune, and strangely enough, at Villanova, we didn't get to, but there was not the forethought for that. But yes, we recommend and generally do a root printing at least a year in advance on, a, on the bigger trees. It just it really helps the tree to recover from the root loss before the tree ever gets moved, such that when it does get moved, you're, it's pretty much bulletproof as long as it's taken care of. So yeah, we try to get at least 12 months. And then depending upon what we're finding, we may even go, go longer than that. And we've gone two years before. I've got a tree up in... Um, Woodside, California, that has been in about a three and a half year reprinting process just because we're taking it super, super slow and only doing little bits of the circumference at a time. So it's variable. And when we have the luxury of time, we, we like to, to take advantage of it. We don't always get to, but we really like it when we do. I remember learning uh, several years ago that midsummer root pruning is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it seems counterintuitive, but I remember a very smart arborist saying, you know, as long as there's the supplemental irrigation, it, there's actually a lot of upside. Exactly. You, you agree with that? I agree. I agree. As long as there's someone is taking care of the tree. That's the key. Right. And then, like in California, are you still involved with the smaller projects in terms of tree spade stuff and everything like that? Yeah. yeah. So we have an office here in Escondido, which is just north of San Diego. It's actually it's, it's a subsidiary company that we own called Big Trees Nursery, where we actually grow trees. We've got 30 acres out here where we're growing all sorts of trees in boxes and in the ground. And we'll sell those one-off to people who come in or we'll sell them you know, by the dozens to, to other projects. We just completed a project out in uh, the Palm Desert where we moved about 3,000 lemon trees. And that was all done with tree spades. Tree spades that we mobilized from Escondido out to that job we did. And it was done last summer. And it, Palm Desert in the summer is a hot, hot place. 120 degrees in the afternoon. And of the 3,000 or so trees we moved, I think we lost maybe four or five. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty it's, amazing. I hope it's, I, haven't, I haven't looked on our website lately. I don't know if it's been added to our 
to our portfolio of projects, but it's a private golf course that was previously a lemon orchard. And the guy who bought it to make himself a private golf course didn't want to just have those lemon trees get destroyed. And so they were all relocated around the perimeters of the golf holes. And it's still an ongoing producing lemon orchard. And this is it's really, really cool. It's a dual use piece of property that's just spectacular out in the middle of one of the hottest places in the country. You did have a golf course on your website that I was looking at them moving. So it must have been that one that yeah. I was looking at. Yeah, and we do this incidentally, we do just a ton of work on golf courses. That's not not as much right now just because of changes in the golf industry and the lack of golf course construction. But over the years, golf course work for us has been very significant. So do you get to advocate for the trees, Paul, on the golf courses? Because, you know, greenskeepers have a fairly notorious reputation for cut them down and... Yeah, I want to water grass, (laughs) not trees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's that can be contentious at times, but you know everyone's really trying to kind of row the boat the same direction. Yes. So yeah, no, we we understand that balance of, of green grass versus green leaves on trees, and right? Speaking to clients, do too. Um, I mean, we've moved entire forests to create golf courses. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, I thought I read that on the website as well. That forest preservation, and yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, it's not really a a bread and butter niche for us, but in particular, we were presented with an opportunity back in the early 2000s where the folks out in Georgia, a little coastal community called Sea Island and St. Simon's Island, the owners of basically all of that land out there were developing a new resort community and wanted to put a golf course on and build a bunch of lakes and do all these exciting things. And they realized very soon as they were excavating these man-made lakes that they were having a soil disposal problem such it was costing them a fortune to truck the soil off of the island. And it was becoming an economic problem for them. We got involved and found that they had a lot of ice trees, but they were all in the wrong spots. So we moved all the hundreds and hundreds, thousands of, of big trees so that they could take that sand that they were excavating to create their lakes, and they put those on the, the new development lots and in all the perimeter areas of the golf course. And then we moved all the trees onto those spots. So sand got moved on site rather than disposed of off site, which was very costly. Um, and then we came in and then reforested those areas uh, with the trees that were growing just in the wrong places on the property. Was that a mix of like uh, pine and oak? Pine and oak. It was, yeah. it was probably a thousand pines and over the course of the entirety of it, probably 1,500, 2,000 oak trees, ranging in size from 10-inch oak trees to the biggest oak trees we've ever moved on the planet. So yeah. huge specimen trees. We ended up putting you know, significant you know, 10 and 12-foot diameter oak trees up and around clubhouses before the clubhouses were built you know, in the areas where they would make the most impact on all the different golf holes to make holes work better for the golfers or work worse for the golfers in the case may be. So yeah, very strategic. And interestingly enough, we, for many years, every year during the Masters golf tournament out at Augusta National, as that is going on, there is a team of of folks from a golf course architecture firm that is actually measuring the path and distance and charting out every shot that is made on the course during the week of the tournament. And after the tournament's over, they go back and review all those golf shots and where every ball landed. And then they will make recommendations to Augusta National, in this case, as to how to adjust 
in the coming years to make the play either harder or easier. And then they would call us and have us come out and say, look, you see this pine tree out here on the left side of fairway on number seven? Right. We, we need to tweak that a little bit and move it about seven feet into closer into the fairway because too many guys were having too good of a time getting down the fairway. So there's all this various minor tweaks to a, a golf course that I never knew existed until I got involved in it. It's just, it's very interesting that there's a whole lot of uh, activity associated with trees and tree relocation on golf courses. Amazing. We yeah. Have all over the country. I've had a lot of students who worked in golf co- clubs and actually manage them. And it's an interesting uh, profession. I'm a terrible golfer. <laughs> I've, I've walked probably every one of the most beautiful golf courses in the country from Pebble Beach to Wingfoot to Augusta National. Never, never picked up a golf club once, but had the opportunity to be involved in doing a lot of really cool stuff on golf courses. Usually when a, when a, when a course knows that they've got a, a major tournament that's in their future, like two or three years out, they'll call us and say, okay, we need y'all to come out and here's what we want to do. So we, we, we have a great time at the company got a big screen TV dedicated to watching golf tournaments where we can look at our trees hmm. as the play is going on. Like the 18th green at Pebble Beach. I visit that tree on a regular basis and we see it every year during the, during the tournament. It's really cool. Same thing with Augusta, same thing with Kiowa Island, uh, Wingfoot, all kind of places like that. My question to you is, and I like as a professor working with students researching, have you and do you collaborate with research institutions to look at the amount of living organisms that each tree has that you move so that you can actually prove that it actually makes a better environment for the place that you're moving it to? We haven't gotten to that level of granularity yet, but we do collaborate very often, very frequently with researchers. In particular, we have a strong relationship with Texas A&M. We just actually, we just finished building a place called Aggie Park, which is a core campus park setting where we supplied and relocated all the trees. So as we do these things, yes, we collaborate with the research folks, the PhD level tree folks uh, from various universities. But specifically about how that's impacting what's going on in the area, I would say, to be honest, we haven't really had much input in that. Because well, that's one of the things that, that I've read in the research right now is that the larger trees have the, the most value to developers and to uh, people sure. who have forests, for example, that these ecosystems have an incredible amount of microorganisms. And it, these, these mother trees, if you will, are holding a treasure trove of organisms that will help the soils to develop around itself and future plants. That makes perfect sense. It's an invigorating aspect to bringing a big giant tree into an otherwise, I wouldn't say barren, but a, but a, less, a lesser ecologically active area. Exactly. Yeah, it seems to be a good thing for all. We bring the squirrels and the birds and everything all the way down to the microorganisms in the soil. I'm so curious. Every project like what you just described, I'm visualizing what that workday looks like in terms of the equipment zipping around and stuff. Going back to the Palm Desert in California and the lemon trees, am I right that at your nursery, the tree spade plucks the lemon trees out of the ground, sticks them into the basket, and then is loaded there, and then they make the trip, right? Yes. Generally speaking, that's exactly how that went. Okay. 
80% of them were taken to a holding nursery while the parcel of land that the trees were ultimately going to go to got its proper grading and all of its infrastructure and irrigation set. Okay. Then we would take them one by one and we would actually dig the hole, the receiving hole with the spade, but then plant the tree that's in the basket with a, a forklift in effect into the holes. Right. Excuse my naivety. At the holding yard, aren't the wire baskets coming down to a point? How, how do you stage them and hold them for a, a length of we time? We actually, we stage them in a hole that's about Oh, of course. Okay. You know? They'll sit right there and they're easy to maintain that way. I got you. And what was the diameter of the lemon trees? Oh, they were small. They were, we were using uh, 65 and 80 inch spades and baskets on those. They weren't, they weren't real big. Only 80 inches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but trunk diameters for those ranged from four to eight inches and they weren't very oh, tall. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and they were it, it unbelievably vigorous and, and just handled and tolerated the, the moving. And it was horrible soil. I mean, it was sand and rock and gravel and junk mostly. But they did one thing really, really right. And that was providing a world of irrigation out there. I mean, water was running on those trees 24 hours a day, mm. constantly, and, and still is, I'm sure. Yeah. It just perks right through that crummy soil. But they're producing lemons like when you say you add so you add amendments what kind of amendments would you be adding depending upon what the soil report we'll do a soil report generally speaking whenever we go and move a big tree just to see what we're dealing with and depending upon where the tree is versus where it's going we try to match that up as best as we can so it just varies based on ph and different either lacks or overabundance of certain aspects of the soil so we kind of take a get a kind of a blueprint and then match it up I really like on the website, you're pretty clear and straightforward about uh, with with the planting receiving site, which I think has a better name than planting hole. But you're pretty clear about dig that hole wider, much wider. Yes. And I think that's a shortcut that uh, a lot of us are guilty of. It's like the the screw in the light bulb technique of... Right. No, there's, and there's several reasons for that, not the least of which is having a, a nice buffer of, of soil between the tree root ball and the eventual wall of the, of the receiving site. So you get a really nutrient-rich soil. And it also allows us, if we do need to make some adjustments for directional placement of the tree, we're able to do that if we have a bigger planting area than that tight you know, cork-in-the-bottle fit. Right, right. Okay. With the oaks that you're digging in Texas... We had a guest on not that long ago from Austin, Texas, who talked about the very complicated disease cycle of oak wilt. And if you're moving oaks, is there anything in preparation treatment-wise that you can do for you move a big oak that is inevitably going to feel a little stress? Yeah, the first thing is to make sure that you're dealing with a disease-free tree to the extent that that's possible. Yeah, and, and we are very cognizant of the oak wilt situation over there as it creeps ever, ever further. But it's a matter of just making sure that what you're about to do is a, move a healthy tree and make sure that it's not going into an area where there has been any oak wilt identified. But in terms of a specific chemical treatment prior to the move for that, that's out of my area of expertise. Yeah. I, and just another question, because I am I love soils and I love roots and that aspect of arboriculture. You must really, at ground level, literally get to see, like I'm, I'm again, thinking of the Meta Sequoia at Villanova University 2011, to be there with the crew, air spade or whatever, hand digging, and just see the distribution of roots 
Exactly. When you're root pruning. And then also, like we just talked about with the expanded planting hole, you're getting to see how those roots respond. Exactly. 12 months, 24 months later. And, and right. uh, yeah. And we oftentimes go back and check that. And, and, and it's, it's funny, it varies depending upon what part of the world you're working in. But we did a project at Disney World, it actually was right before the pandemic, where they're building a new hotel resort in their wilderness area. And they have this big, beautiful live oak that they wanted to move from where it was living into an area where they were going to have a portico share and a parking circle and all those sorts of beautiful things. So they had us come in and do it. And we actually boxed that tree, put it in a 36-foot square box. Um, and we came in and first thing we did was root prune. And it, it was very, in fact, I didn't know what I was looking at at first when I came back and looked, but about a month later after the root prune, I came back and we just pulled back one section of the plastic just to see what was going on. And we don't know why yet, but that tree was already callous. The roots were callousing over and growing new feeder roots within 30 days of us having cut the original roots. So that was remarkable to see and in a very rare instance. But yes, to answer your, your question, we will go back during the root prune process over the course of months and look and see what we're getting. Yeah, And it's amazing that you find not generally that sort of rapid, rapid growth, but within three months, for sure, you really start to see new root generation off those fresh cuts. And it's you get to take all that with you when you move the trees. You capture all that. And so that's it's really the, the basis of the root pruning. You, you yeah. create all these roots and you take them with you and the, the tree's healthier for it. In fact, there are studies that say that super, super mature old trees, in particular oaks, can benefit from just having a root pruning done, reinvigorates their root structure and may add life to a tree. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. During the backfill process, any techniques that you would recommend in terms of the tamping Yes. I, I guess it's the Proctor Index or anything, or can you just kind of go on your gut and... and... We've done it for, for so long that we, yeah. we have developed very simple techniques for making that work really well. And that involves using a high level of water and sand first and making sure that you've gotten rid of all, to the extent that that's possible, air pockets in the root. You don't want to have... You know, air, air pockets will kill roots. So we do a very deliberate process of water injection with sand and then soil and then ultimately a mulch cap over the top of it. Right. But yeah, that's, aside from the post care, the backfill is really, really important. We've run across projects or trees that we didn't necessarily move, but others might have moved and find that there'll be voids. You'll be walking around the edge of the root ball and you might not see a spot where there's a two and a half, four and a half foot long area where it's sunken by two feet down because they didn't do it in the proper way. Right. So we're very cognizant of getting that piece right. Interesting. Our listeners, so our listeners know, the difference between air pockets, these large gaping holes, versus the uh, soil air holes that are so important for the structure of the soil. Oh, right. Totally right. different. Right. Totally different. Yes. People get that yes. confused. I know I've had a lot of students get confused. Well, why are we tamping down the soil when we're concerned about the air spaces within the context of the soil. So I think that's important to mention from a soil structure standpoint. Well, we've learned a lot. And uh, I really, I, even I both really appreciate your time. Sure. And pleasure. I think our listeners have also, are also going to benefit from learning about projects of this scale and scope and that the Cox brothers really have built a marvelous company. 
Well, it's been a fun, fun time, not without occasional moments of sheer terror. But, <laughs> but for the most part, it's been it's been quite the adventure. And we look forward to the next group that we're coming up to, to keep us keep this thing going in our retirement years. Yes. Is it more private money that, that pays for this or is it more municipal? Do you have a lot of municipalities that do this? Because I think that's important too for our listeners. All of the it's all of the above, but surprisingly enough, there's a lot of private individuals that are just very interested and they have the means and the wherewithal to do the right thing when it comes to trees on their property. I mean, we deal with whose names I can't mention, but you'd know right. them. They're in the news constantly all the time that are spending millions of dollars to maintain their properties by moving, relocating giant trees and just preserving them in general. So, and on, on the other hand, we do work for cities and states and all sorts of different entities. So it's kind of a, a mixture of all of the above. A new infrastructure bill might be beneficial also for people wanting yes. to make new roadways and maybe move a tree rather exactly. than chop exactly. it down. And there are a lot of different, uh, in, in particular, we have a huge market in Washington, D.C., which is where I used to spend lots of my time. We're instrumental there and in other parts of the country in helping write what their ordinances should be to protect these big giant trees. That's awesome. It may sound a little self kind of is, but in Washington, D.C., if a tree is of a certain species and size and you've got a construction project, your project is not going to get approved unless you deal with that tree in the proper context. And that that's what all we do there is go and move trees so that people can build buildings. It goes on. We're doing, I think we've got three or four projects in D.C. right now that are going on that have what they call heritage trees that are being relocated. And I think that's really commendable. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a win for everybody, really. And it's a, it's a win for the developer in particular. I mean, they get really great publicity by doing the right thing, even though they've kind of been forced into it. But they do see that positive aspect of, of moving the tree relative to promoting their project. It's It never fails. that When we get out on a project like that, the first thing the developer wants to do is get the news out there and, and get the local television stations and everything else and get the article writers and the podcasters and everybody wants to come out and be part of it. And it's great. It's great. It's a good thing. Well, I hope you get to keep preaching to greenskeepers and convert a few more to tree lovers. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> Paul, what is your favorite tree since you know the United States of America, east, west, north, south? I really like the Dawn Redwoods, you know, the Villanova type trees, yeah. the Monterey Cypress, the California oaks. There's the Quercus agrifolia and Quercus lobata. Or you know, now that I'm out here, when I was out in the east, I, I was constantly marveling at the at the maples and the, some of the other the, the, the beeches and the birches. But yeah, you know, I've got about four or five favorites. My most favorite of all, though, is the Monterey, the tree at the 18th Green at Pebble Beach, and it's just it's just such an iconic. Tree. A Monterey uh, pine? No, my cypress. Oh, cypress. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it guards that green and it's it never missed a beat from the time we moved it till today. Fantastic. So I'll be out there next week. So it has your <laughs> fingerprint on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate you being on the podcast. Hi, anytime. Lovely. Thanks, Paul. Have Thank a great you. day. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 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 The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank <laughs> you. 